Good to see you all. You know, as I said last week, after being sick for a few weeks and then being gone, attending a pastor's and wife's conference in California, we're finally back in Romans. And tonight we find ourselves in chapter 3, where Paul is answering a series of hypothetical questions and objections that he anticipates his Jewish readers uh, would raise after his claims that their heritage, the law, and the right of circumcision wouldn't and couldn't make them righteous in God's eyes. Uh, as we have said, these three things gave the Jews a tremendous feeling of security and safety from God's judgment. And so, uh, in this section, Paul sits about to systematically destroy this false security. you got to sometimes hold people's feet to the fire. If they feel smug and secure, all right? A lot of folks go to church on a regular basis, and they, I don't know, light the candles if they're Catholics or pray the rosary, and they feel very, get the ashes smeared in their foreheads, uh, you know, on Ash uh, Wednesday. Um, they feel very secure, and... You're never going to reach them with the gospel as long as they're feeling secure that they're right with God. That's the problem with religion. It's inoculative. It gives people just enough sense of false righteousness to inoculate them to the real thing. And that's dangerous. And only God can really open their eyes, okay? So Paul, in love, and you say, well, isn't Paul being a little hard on these folks? He loves them. Uh, he would go on to say, if it were possible, I would choose to go to hell if my countrymen could be saved. So there's no doubt his love for his people. Well, yeah, he's, he's not uh, making it easy on them. Uh, he's, he sets out in this section to systematically destroy this false security, which, as we said, they had kind of wrapped themselves in. And he does it by peeling off layer after layer of false righteousness and we see him do that in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. And uh, Paul knew that this would immediately lead to a series of questions and objections uh, from the Jews that he anticipates. And he verbalizes in verses, I think it is 1 through 9 of chapter 3. Now, we looked at the first couple of questions last week. Just let's review quickly, okay? So I've got here question slash objection number 1, verse 1 of chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? In other words, what Paul anticipates his Jewish readers were thinking, at least some of them, uh, if all you have said is true, Paul, and we, again, they're talking about our chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. Paul didn't write in chapters and verses back then. He just wrote a letter. But we understand, all right? But if all you have said, Paul, is true, and Jews are no better than Gentiles, since all are guilty of violating God's laws. If our Jewish heritage, our knowing and teaching the Mosaic law, and our following Jewish rituals such as circumcision do not make a Jew righteous before God, well, then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, Paul answers quickly, he says in verse 2, much in every way, chiefly, because to them were committed the oracles of God. Look, Paul understands this. Being a Jew has many special privileges and blessings attached to it, uh, not the least of which being that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures were given to the Jews by God for them to, as we said last time, protect, copy, teach, 
and preserved for future generations. But guys, listen, as James tells us in chapter 1 of his epistle, just because a person or a people has the word of God and hears it preached every week in synagogue or in church, it's meaningless if they don't do what it says. Simply having the word is no, it's not enough. The Jews thought because God gave us the word, the law, we're safe. God wouldn't give his law to people he was going to judge. There's a lot of folks that believe because they go to church and hear the word that that's all they need to do. They're safe now. God is uh, going to protect them. <laughs> Not just from coming judgment. Some people think from all bad stuff. Now, we'll talk about that at the end of this message. But remember what James says in chapter 1, verse 22. He said, look, <laughs> be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving yourselves. We can be deceived in that you come to church, you hear the word, you think, well, I've heard it. I know what God has said. Great. Now you're responsible to do what God has said. And that's why I have here, in fact, it's worse if you have it and don't do it. I mean, if you have the word of God but don't keep it, it's, it actually works in reverse and, and is a liability, a, a basis for judgment. Because again, knowing the truth and not living it is worse than not knowing it at all. All right. He talks about, prof, uh, about the profit of circumcision. Okay, well then what is the profit of being a Jew? What about circumcision? Why, why do we go through that? As we said last time, guys, and we're just reviewing quickly from last week, circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which brought the Jews into this very special relationship with God. Sure, it contained many blessings, this relationship, but it also carried with it many responsibilities as well. And that's what Paul's trying to communicate to his Jewish countrymen. Paul goes on, but... How have the people of Israel responded to this tremendous blessing? Yeah, God gave them uh, the word, the law, our, our Old Testament scriptures, and made them his covenant people through circumcision. But how has Israel responded in, the, in light of this tremendous privilege? Well, he said, for the most part, they've demonstrated an appalling lack of faith. That's what he goes on to imply in these verses, right? Which led to another question, the second one, and we looked at this last week as well. Verse 3, for what if, and you, you might be thinking, I'm not quite sure I follow Paul's logic here. Well, you got to think like a Jew. We're going to try to do that tonight, all right? If you think like a Gentile, you might not get what Paul is, you know, he's anticipating Jewish questions. Uh, because he was Jewish, he understood that, all right? We have to try to put ourselves in the Jews' place uh, as the people of God for, at this point, 1,500 years. And um, Paul's making some pretty incredible uh, statements here um, about how that none of that's going to get him to heaven. Chosen people of God, given the law, circumcised, none, none of that's going to make him righteous. You have to understand, from a Jewish perspective, that was like earth-shattering, that Paul would even say something like that. So, verse 3, the question in Paul's mind arises, they were thinking... For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Now, Paul imagined that some would be thinking at this point, well, uh, granted, not all Jews have believed. That's true. So does that mean that God will go back on his promises to the entire nation to bring the Messiah to rescue the Jewish people from Gentile 
dominion and oppression at this time Rome and establish the kingdom. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the Jewish people believed in a national salvation. They saw themselves as a unit, the people of God. And they kind of believed that God would save the entire nation. In fact, they believed it so much that the rabbis taught that Father Abraham actually stood outside the gates of hell to pluck any, listen, unbelieving Jew out of the line of those going into hell because they were, they were Jews. And God looked at the Jewish people as a unit, as a, as a whole. So they did believe in a national salvation, that he was going to save the entire nation regardless, even if they were believers or not. That's ridiculous. But I have to believe if they believed in a national salvation, they also believed in a, na a national condemnation. Uh, and this is what the question is. Well, does that mean that because not all Jews have believed, does that mean nationally now Messiah is not going to come? Does that, has that caused us to forfeit the promises of God? Paul's answer in verse 4, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. And guys, as we said last week, God made an unconditional covenant with the Jewish people through Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And as we studied last week, this was a unilateral, unilateral means a one-party, one-party covenant, bilateral, two-party covenant. But as we said last week, this was a unilateral, unconditional covenant that couldn't be broken through their unfaithfulness. So a lot of folks going around today saying that Israel forfeited the promises of God, they forfeited the place as God's chosen people, uh, all because of their unfaithfulness. And I hope that we showed last week, looking at uh, Genesis 15 and then chapter 17, that God made a unilateral, in other words, it's called the Abrahamic covenant, but God really made it with himself and chose to put Israel as the beneficiaries. He didn't include Abraham, which meant neither Abraham nor his descendants had any part in this covenant. God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And then God passed through those animal parts and ratified the covenant all by himself. And guys, as we said, that meant that this was a unilateral, unconditional covenant. Abraham couldn't forfeit it, and neither could his descendants. You say, but wait a minute, but they rejected Jesus. Certainly that's the basis for them forfeiting the promises. Not even though they rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ, not even that caused God to reject them. I'm not going to bat for them in the sense that what they did was okay okay i'm just saying that any christian group that says that because the jews were unfaithful uh in not keeping up their end of the covenant and they rejected their own messiah when he finally came on the scene god has, has rejected them you can't forfeit a covenant you had no terms or conditions to fulfill and again we talked about that at length last time uh the new covenant the covenant that God made with us, his church, through Jesus Christ, like the Abrahamic covenant, is a unilateral, unconditional covenant. This is where it all comes home. Remember, we read to you out of Galatians, where Paul said, look, the promise that God made to Abraham really, in, uh, to a large extent, uh, applies to us as well. How so, Paul? Because we are children of Abraham by faith. I mean, you know, as we have talked about, and we'll talk about it again, 
The Jews believed because they uh, were Abraham's descendants by blood and were circumcised, they were automatically saved. But here's the thing, and Paul, Paul brings this up. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael had the blood of Abraham in his veins. He didn't have the faith of Abraham in his heart. He was circumcised, yet he was an unbeliever. And that's Paul's point. It's not the outward things that God's looking at. It's the circumcision of the heart. And those people who have repented, received Christ, they are children of Abraham by faith and uh, recipients of the covenant and the promises God made. What was the ultimate covenant or promise God made to Israel? The kingdom. In chapter 11 of Romans, he's going to say we were grafted in. We're members of the kingdom, the promise that God gave to the patriarchs. We're the beneficiaries, even though we're Gentiles, because we're children of Abraham by faith. We'll get to that, okay? But this new covenant that God made with his people in the, the church is also a, a, an unconditional covenant. Look, God promised us eternal life if we put our faith in Jesus. But that promise isn't dependent on our faithfulness in keeping God's laws, God's commandments. In other words, we don't earn eternal life through our obedience to what God commanded. I mean, listen, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's true. But obedience is always the result of salvation, never the prerequisite for earning salvation. Once you're saved, well, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and so on. The fruit of our relationship with Jesus, we love him, we want to obey him, we, we want to be a light in the world for him, that kind of thing. It's all because of our relationship with him. Those things don't earn us um, a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. They don't earn us salvation. The point is that in the New Covenant, guys, we receive God's promise of eternal life by believing in and receiving Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 12 is very clear about that, not to mention a lot of other scriptures. Uh, but guys, if the new, and we talk... Again, we touched on this last time. If the new covenant was bilateral, was a bilateral covenant dependent upon God to keep his part, which is give us eternal life, if, bilateral, if we kept our part of the covenant, which was to keep the law perfectly, well, none of us would be saved. Quickly, turn to Romans 4. We looked at it last time. Let me look at it. Let's look at it again quickly. Romans 4. See, the old covenant under Moses was a flawed covenant. Why? Because it was a bilateral covenant. Bilateral. Israel had conditions to fulfill, which they didn't. And so they forfeited that covenant. God did not bless them as he promised he would if they obeyed him. But when it comes to eternal life, God took it right out of our hands. He made a covenant with himself to give us something simply by our faith. Not that we have conditions to fulfill or anything. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans 4, verse 16. Therefore, uh, this new covenant is what he's saying. Eternal life is by faith, that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all Abraham's seed, right? Not only to those who are of the law, not only the Jews, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, Gentiles who believe, because Abraham is the father of us, all, of all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. Guys, if the promise of salvation was based on us perfectly keeping the law, 
that promise would be worthless because it would be based on conditions, listen, that no one could possibly meet. If God said, I promise to give you eternal life if you jump across the Grand Canyon, well, that promise would be worthless because no one could meet that condition. The same would be true if God promised to give a person eternal life if they lived a sinless life. Again, that would be a worthless promise because no one could meet that condition. Nobody could be perfect. Only one person was ever born perfect, lived a perfect life, Jesus Christ. And that's why we all need him because we can't live that life, that perfect life, which is required to get into heaven. So if God promised to give a person eternal life if they lived a sinless life, uh, thanks, Lord, but you know that's, a meaningless promise. I, I, none of us can do that. But if God said, which he did to you and me, to all humanity, I promise to give you eternal life if you believe in my son based on what he did and not on what you do. Now we're talking. Now that's a covenant. That's a promise I can get behind because that promise is attainable by everybody because everyone can believe in Jesus. That's why God could promise us eternal life. Listen, the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, 1 John 5, 13, because it's based on what he did for us and not on what we do for him, which is why Jesus said from the cross, it is what? Finished. If this was a bilateral covenant, he would have said from the cross, Father, thank you, I finished my part. Now give them grace to do their part. Why, that would be terrifying. Okay. When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, what he was saying is the work of redemption has been paid in full. And anyone can be saved because I've done the work. I paid the price. Anyone can be saved if they just put their faith in me. That's the new covenant. If our salvation was by our works, he couldn't have promised us eternal life. Eternal life, think about this, guys. Some people think, well, you can have eternal life and lose it. You can lose your salvation. Listen, the whole definition of eternal life is uninterrupted life for eternity. There's no such thing as eternal life that can be broken or taken from you. It's not eternal then. And think about that, all right? If it was by our works that we were saved, then the Lord could never have promised us eternal life the moment we put our faith in Him. Again, 1 John 5, 13 and other places. All He could have done was to say, and this is where the illustration gets a little stupid, but all He could have done was to say, look, we'll see if you will live, but your faith in me, that starts the process. I can't promise you you're going to go to heaven, but we'll see. You know, we'll see. If you live a good enough life, do enough good things, work hard enough. When you die, we'll see if you've done enough good stuff to earn your salvation. Well, that's a stupid illustration because to be saved, you have to be perfect. We've talked about this. But there's a lot of folks, just for the sake of an illustration, the idea that if if I was involved in purchasing or earning my salvation, there's no way God could have promised it to me the moment I I received Christ as my Savior. The best he could have done was to say, well, we'll see. Uh, putting your faith in my son, that's the first step. But now you got a lot of work to do. you got to prove yourself worthy. And we'll see. If you live your whole life and you're worthy enough, we'll see if you've earned 
eternal life. We know that's foolish because what's required to get to heaven is sinless perfection. And Paul makes that case very clear as he starts the next major section of the book, which we'll, uh, I think, get to next week. Um, anyways, that brings us to the third question. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. In other words, uh, I'm just presenting a human argument or question. This isn't my words, Paul. So I'm just putting myself in the place of others who would raise this, this question. Okay? Verse 5 again, but if our righteousness, excuse me, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Look, what Paul anticipates some are thinking, and again, these are Jewish thoughts, all right? But Paul is anticipating some Jews were thinking if our unrighteousness causes the righteousness of God to shine more gloriously, how can God judge us for wrongdoing by bringing his wrath upon us? And again, he notes here that in saying these words, he's using a typical human argument. Maybe you've talked to people at times throughout the years uh, that have raised this kind of an, an issue, okay? Paul's answer, again, verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? Verse 6, certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? In other words, guys, Paul is saying, such an argument, you know, is unworthy of serious consideration. If God condones sin because it brought him glory by making him look, you know, all the more holy and righteous, by comparison to fallen sinners. Look, if you've ever bought your fiance, and I hope you have, if she's your fiance, you should have bought her a ring. You go to the jewelry store, right, to buy her a diamond. And what does the jeweler do? They first take out a piece of black velvet to put the diamond on. Why? Because against the blackness of the velvet, the diamond pops. That's kind of the argument. Well, if my black life, sin and all, causes God's glory and righteousness to really pop, when he stands next to me, is my sin all that bad then? <laughs> I mean, he would have no righteous basis for judging the world for its sin if sin actually, if the only purpose for sin was to make God look good. That would basically mean sin was good. And if sin is good, then sinners couldn't be rightfully judged for basically doing what brings God glory, for that's a good thing. See, look, we, we sit here and we think, wow, who would think like that? Well, there are people out there who so twist God's word. Um, if you haven't run into them yet, you will eventually. Their whole thing in life is to make you look stupid. They're very sharp. Voltaire, the French philosopher, an atheist, very sharp guy. In fact, he was so brilliant, he could turn a phrase, he could... he um, was so quick-witted, he bent Christians into pretzels, left them stammering. They couldn't even, you know, catch their breath. He would mock them and ridicule them, and, and, and he could really do that because he was a brilliant guy. There are people, some people that are so smart, so brilliant, they can take what you think is obvious and make, so turn it around that by the end of it, you're asking yourself if you really believe or not. I mean, come on. If, Paul, you're saying my sin 
allows God to show me grace and that brings him glory, is my sin really sin? Is it really a bad thing? I mean, come on, anything that makes God look good by comparison, that's, that's good, right? How could God judge me for that, is the idea. Paul continues in this line of thinking. He continues to put forth this argument by these fictional people that he's talking for. Verse 7, For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? The question turns into an objection. It goes along these lines. If my sin brings glory to God, if my lie vindicates his truth, then how can he find fault with me as a sinner? One author put it this way, said, and I quote, The argument here is that if this particular sin merely enhances the glory and the grace of God, then all sin would do the same. Therefore, God would not be able to judge the world for sin, and make no mistake about it, he will judge this sinful world someday. Perhaps one of the best rebuttals I, I came across in my study was from one of our Calvary pastors. Uh, I thought this was, he nailed it, okay? Uh, going back to verse 7, drawing on that idea that, look, uh, if the truth of God has increased through my lies, then why am I judged as a sinner? This pastor said, and I quote, in theory, the most dramatic example of someone who might ask this question is Judas. Can you hear Judas make, the, make his case? Lord, I know I betrayed Jesus, but you used it for good. In fact, if I hadn't done what I did, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross at all. What I did even fulfilled the scriptures. How can you judge me at all? The answer, the author says, to Judas might go something like this. Yes, God used your wickedness, but it was still your wickedness. There was no good or pure motives in your heart at all. It is no credit to you that God brought good out of your evil. You stand guilty before God, end quote. Look, I don't care what kind of good, quote unquote, comes out of somebody's evil. It doesn't justify the evil. The end in God's economy never, the end never justifies the means. You have a lot of people that would think, and this is the argument that Paul is anticipating, some are thinking, well, if my sin shows how great God is by comparison, well, that's a good thing, right? How can God hold me accountable? How can God call me a sinner? I'm bringing him glory. Wow. And so this kind of thinking gave birth to a perverted philosophy, which Paul mentioned some had attributed to him. Verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Now that's the natural conclusion if you get into that kind of thinking that's the natural it's where it leads right well why not say let us do evil that good may come as we are slanderously reported uh, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just and so the next question question four on my notes why wouldn't it be logical to say i mean if sin man's sin shows God to be so gracious and wonderful and so on, well then, shouldn't we sin more? That, that, that good may come? Paul's response, and I'm just paraphrasing, let me interrupt to say that some people actually accuse us Christians of using this argument, Paul is saying. But 
it is nothing more than slander. All I can say, Paul would respond, all I can say is that the condemnation of people who talk like this is well-deserved. You show your true colors. Uh, wisdom is known by her what? Children. What your so-called wisdom gives birth to determines if it's really wisdom from God. Because there's wisdom from God and there's the wisdom of this world. One is of God, one is of the devil. Wisdom of man is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Okay. Defund the police. That's wisdom. What is that given birth to? A lot of chaos, death. Not so wise, is it? Wisdom is known by what it births. I like what my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, said with regard to this. He said, and I quote, The redemption through Jesus Christ is wonderful, and it's especially glorious when a person whose life has been so totally destroyed by sin, where they are really at the bottom of the barrel, they get saved. It's glorious to see the grace of God extended to, to such a person and their lives transformed miraculously. It's wonderful to see God take someone whose life is worthless according to the world's standard and make them an instrument of his glory. We call them trophies of grace. And we look uh, to what God has wrought and we rejoice together. We see so many of our pastors of Calvary chapels who God rescued from the junk heap. And God has raised them up and is using them mightily now in ministering the gospel around the world. And we see these men whom the grace of God has just been magnified. We, we see these men whom the grace of God has just been magnified because uh, they were so low. And God has lifted them up from the pit out of the miry clay and has established their feet upon the rock, Jesus Christ. And now they are being... Uh, being such a power for God's glory, does that mean that I should go out and just really destroy my life with sin and take all of the drugs I can get a hold of and all and so that then I can be saved and then God's grace might be demonstrated through my life? Um, as people say, oh, praise God, look at what the Lord did for that poor soul. So, so just because some people have been saved out of the pit, okay? I mean, a lot of our Calvary pastors at one time were drug addicts, drug dealers. Uh, you, you read the book Harvest that Chuck wrote years ago, showcasing 10 Calvary of mega churches, 10 Calvary pastors, and the lives that they lived, what they were involved in, and how God touched them, saved them, and took them out of the junk heap of humanity and and. and transform them into a, a person that God was using powerfully for his glory. Now, just because God's done that with some, should we all say, oh, well, let's all sin, that we can all see God work gloriously in all of our lives. Oh, so where are the drugs? I'll, I'm going to be a drug addict, and I'm going to get drunk every night, and, and that way when God saves me, what a testimony I'm going to have, right? And Chuck says, no, no, no. But you see that this is the kind of foolish reasoning that sometimes people have. Paul is saying, uh, is saying those who say, let us do evil that good may come, their judgment is richly deserved, end quote. Folks, make no mistake about it, especially in verses 7 and 8, all right, where Paul is speaking on behalf of people that have this warped view of sin and righteousness and so on. Make no mistake about it, this is nothing more than legalism's attack on God's grace. 
This is nothing more than legalism's attack on God's grace. That's what Paul is coming against. He's coming against the law and the Jews who are embraced it and believe that a person is saved by keeping the law and so and so on and so forth. Um, and Paul's preaching grace. I mean, his message was that we are saved by grace. Grace means getting what you don't deserve. Getting what you don't deserve. Salvation is, is a gift uh, we receive, not something we work to earn. And so the legalists Paul was dealing with uh, mocked the whole notion of us being saved by grace. This was Paul's message. And this is what they were coming against. Paul had been a Jew. Well, he was still a Jew. But he had been, um, you know, high up in, in, in Judaism as a rabbi, theologian. So now he's the object of scorn and ridicule. They're mocking him with sarcasm. That's, that's the whole idea, okay? Well, what's going on here? And Paul knows this. He's been the brunt of it for a long time, that uh, he's preaching uh, salvation by grace, and they believe, well, wait a minute. <laughs> well, let me just say this. They went around, these legalists, and we see them in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers, okay? But they went around saying that if what Paul was saying is true, that salvation isn't dependent upon how good you are or how well you keep the law, then sin doesn't matter. They're mocking him. Then sin doesn't matter, does it? It would be like two men standing before a judge, one accused of jaywalking, the other accused of murder, and the judge treating them both like the crime was the same, and even worse, because they both said they were sorry and asked to be set free, the judge lets them go. The Judaizers were saying, that's, but Paul, that's your message. You're saying that it doesn't matter how sinful a person has lived their life. All they got to do is say, I'm sorry, and accept Christ, and that's all they need? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. They were mocking Paul's preaching. They were going around saying that Paul is going around telling people that sin is irrelevant, that it doesn't matter because God gives salvation as a gift to anyone who believes in Jesus no matter how wickedly they've lived. In fact, in Paul's way of thinking, they reasoned, the more a person sins, the more God receives glory for saving them. Again, the more wicked a person's life. We, we even see this over the years. We've seen it with people that, um, I've, I've heard stories of people in the mafia. One guy was a hitman. I mean, he gave his testimony on uh, radio one night. I couldn't believe it. He had uh, over 300 uh, assassinations he was involved in. And then God worked in his life and he got saved. When a person like that gives their heart to Christ, we want to rush him up on stage. We want to put him on TV. We, because, wow, what a glorious testimony. And that's kind of how they were feeling. Paul, you're glorifying sin. You're telling sinners that it doesn't matter how bad they are, they believe in Jesus, they're going to be saved. Now, if you're a Jew, you, you can understand where they were coming from. We, we, we understand that. But legalists don't ever really get grace. They don't. They always misinterpret it. They always mock it. They always paint it in the worst possible light because in their minds, you cannot be saved by just believing. You have to go to church and light candles and pray the rosary and do this and that and everything else that require your religion or church uh, requires. When God saves somebody who is really rotten, boy, doesn't that show him to be even more merciful and kind and gracious and so on? 
And therefore they reason that Paul is teaching that sin is actually, a, in their minds, what they, what they believe Paul was saying is sin is actually a good thing. I mean, uh, you know, Paul, I mean, you're, you're actually saying that sin is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because when somebody is saved by God who is that bad, it look, makes God look all the more good. And that's ridiculous, Paul. That's what they were basically saying. Well, Paul fires back. That's ridiculous. I have never and would never assert such a wicked premise that it's good to sin. God enjoys when he sin because it brings him glory. Those who say such things deserve the judgment they have coming. Now, guys, at this point, Paul enters into his closing arguments on the guilt and condemnation that the whole world and everyone in it is under apart from Christ. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Are, are we Jews better than Gentiles? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Earlier, he said hypothetically, what, what is the advantage of being a Jew? Much in every way. But it doesn't mean that we are more righteous than anyone else in God's eyes. Sure, a lot of benefits from being a Jew. We talk about this, right? But one of the benefits isn't that they are automatically righteous because they're circumcised and God gave them the law and they're descendants of Abraham and so on. Paul's answer is that the Jews are no better or no worse than the Gentiles. All are sinners. Now this is, you know, if you're an Orthodox Jew back then and you're listening to Paul make the argument in chapter 1 that all the pagans are condemned, then he moves to the moral people like there's was Gentiles who were moral, quote-unquote, even though none is really moral, right? Um, and if you're a Jew, you're sitting there watching them go after the heathens and the Gentile moralists. As an Orthodox religious observant Jew, you might be thinking, well, yeah, they deserve to go to hell. But then Paul hits them with the final, you know, well, you're no better. As a Jew, it doesn't matter if you are uh, keeping the law, which you're not, but it doesn't matter if you think you are. You're, no, nobody is going to get to heaven by keeping the law. Now, he's going to make that very clear in just a, a little bit as we progress through Romans 3. But Paul's answer is that the Jews are no better or no worse than the Gentiles. All are sinners. And guys, that leads up to and parallels the next question in Paul's presentation. He has shown that the heathen are lost. He has shown that the self-righteous moralists, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, are lost. And now religious Jews are lost. Now he turns to the next question he anticipates his readers will be asking themselves. Uh, number question number five, Paul, are you saying then that all people are lost? Paul's answer, yes. We've already charged that all people are under the power of sin. Now we notice this. He says, yes. We, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under what? Sin. In the Greek, it's singular, not plural. Well, what does that mean? He's not talking about individual sins. He's talking about the sin nature, the source of all sin. All right? Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 6. I wasn't going to go here, but I, th I think we need to just for a minute. 1 Corinthians 6. I want to show you something. We've, we've talked talked about this before so first corinthians 6 i want to read to you verses 9 and uh, and 10 because you know as a young christian when i read this i was terrified 
I didn't really understand what Paul was saying. I thought I did. But we have to make the distinction between the sin nature and then the fruit or the works of the sin nature. So verse 9, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a young believer reads that and goes, well, I've done some of that stuff. Does that mean I'm not going to heaven? Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 11. And such were some of you. He doesn't say, and such did some of you. He's not talking about individual sins. He's talking about categories of sinners. Okay, categories of sinners. All of these in verses 9 and 10, these are all people whose fallen nature dominates their lives in a certain area. Drunkard, homosexuals, thieves, whatever. It's just important to make that distinction because and Paul's going to hit this very heavy in the next couple of chapters, next three or four chapters actually uh, in particular, where he really talks about sin, but he's talking about the sin nature, the sin nature. And here's the thing. Uh, I was just at a pastor's conference, and one of the pastors read from Romans 8, and he made a statement that this is talking about Christians who are living a carnal life. And I almost fell out of my seat. No, it is not. Because the comparison Paul is making is not with spiritual Christians as opposed to carnal Christians. It's Christians as opposed to unbelievers. Those who have a fallen nature and those who have been redeemed. Read it again, beginning of chapter 8 especially, where he makes it clear. He's not talking about carnal Christians. He's talking about Christians can be saved and be carnal still, as opposed to unbelievers. So this is a very important thing that he's kind of introducing here. But it's just important that you understand that, you know, we are sinners by nature. Uh, we sin every day proving that we are sinners, okay? My pastor used to use an illustration, and I'm going to update it, because he said, he put it in older terms. He said, Stealing a horse doesn't make you a horse thief. It just proves that you are one. Because if you were not a horse thief, you could never steal a horse. We could say, stealing a car doesn't make you a car thief. It just proves that you are one, right? God says everything is going to bring forth after its kind, is the idea. And if you have a fallen sin nature that is dominating because you're an unbeliever, the fruit that's going to come forth is sin. Various kinds of sins, all coming from the core problem, which is your sin nature. That which you received from Adam when you were born. That's why Jesus had to be virgin born. Because the sin nature passes down from the father to the children. In Adam all die, not in Eve. And the idea is that if Jesus would have had an earthly father, he would have inherited a sin nature. He couldn't have died for sinners. He had to be virgin born. So the case he's making is, look, Jews and Gentiles all have a sin nature. That's the problem. Now, at this point, Paul is going to use these final verses, verses 9 to 20 
of chapter 3 to kind of close out this first section of the book, which we've entitled Condemnation. Uh, this section runs from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. We've talked about that. And the whole section is based on Paul's assertion that there are no good, moral, or righteous people in the world apart from Jesus Christ. They're not out there. All right? Look at verse, we'll read verses 9 to 12. What then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than the Gentiles? No, we're all sinners. We all need Jesus. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, we're going to save this for next time to really kind of dig into it. But guys, let me just say this. Because we'll just finish with this and kind of use this to set up next, next week. This statement runs contrary to what most people think about themselves. That they are basically good people. Right? I mean, the Bible affirms that mentality. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 6, uh, most men proclaim each their own goodness. Everyone pretty much thinks they're a good person. Okay? I remember a, a little um, survey. I, I, read, I read this in a, a commentary. So a little survey that was taken somewhere in a prison among the inmates, asking them if they thought they were good people, even though they're in prison. Are you a good person or not a good I think pretty much every one of them thought they were a good person. Convicts, uh, convicted criminals. Man has such a, a, a high opinion of himself that even when he, he breaks the law and is convicted and sent to prison, he still thinks he's basically a good person. I made a few mistakes. Yeah, when I got caught that night, I made a big mistake. Um, but I'm still basically a good person. Now look, let me just say this, and we'll kind of bring this to a close, but back in 1981, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. His book struck a chord with the public because it shot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list practically overnight and stayed there for over a year, and since its first publishing has sold over 4 million copies. That's a huge bestseller. Apparently, a lot of people wrestle with this problem because they see themselves as, quote-unquote, good people, so much so that when bad things happen to them, they, they lash out at God. They lash out at God for being unfair to them. And you'll hear them say things like, well, I'm a good person. This shouldn't be happening to me. I don't deserve this. Instead of examining themselves, they want to find fault with God. Now, look, in general... Unbelievers will hear us as Christians talk about the God of the Bible being a God of love, a good God, a caring God, but then they look into the world and they see a world full of evil, injustice, war, disease, and so on, and they can't reconcile the concept of a good and loving God with all the garbage going on, going on in the world. And this forces people to conclude one of two things. First of all, either there is no God, it's a myth, God doesn't exist, because if he existed, he wouldn't let this all this evil take place, or that he isn't a good and loving God after all. The conclusion that Rabbi Kushner came to in his book, and I'm going to quote him for why bad things happen to good people, was this, and I quote, God is limited. He is loving but not all-powerful. There are some things God doesn't control because he can't control them. 
He's not perfect, and we must forgive him for not making a better, more perfect world for us to live in, end quote. Oh, my goodness. That's a man who's got an inflated view of himself and humanity. Give poor God a break. He's doing his best. You know, he tried. Didn't do a very good job with the world, but we, we, we love him. See, he's the problem, not us. That is the classic jujitsu move that unbelievers are. You know, it's like God trying to hold them down to see their sin, and they flip God over in a sense. Now, he's the bad guy. He's, he's the villain. I'm the good guy. I'm being, you know, unfairly treated. Wow. There's the third possibility, which is the one the Bible sets forth. No, not that God is non-existent or that he's not a good and loving God. No. There's a third possibility for why there's all this evil in the world. And it's the one the Bible sets forth. And that is that a good, loving, all-powerful God created a good world for mankind to live in. A world free of sin, suffering, corruption, evil, and death. And he gave to man, when he created us, a good thing called free will. He didn't want robots. He wanted us to be people that had a free will, who would love and obey him freely. But it was man who exercised his free will in rebellion against his creator. That's the story of the Bible. And at that moment, the fall occurred. And sin entered the world through the sin of Adam and Eve and was passed down now through all their descendants. This is not the world God created us to live in. I mean, to blame God for this world is so manifestly wrong, it's hard to even know where to begin. This is not the world God created us to live in. This is a world we messed up. When I say we, I mean our forefather and mother, all right? And the result was that after every day of creation, God said, it is good, it is good. God saw it was good. He stepped back at, at the end of day six and saw that it was all good. Didn't take long for it to become all bad because Adam and Eve blew it. And the result was that God's good creation was corrupted. Some asked, did God create evil? No, the answer is absolutely not. Evil is a corruption of what was created good. It's like rust to a car or rot to a tree. It's like going outside somewhere and seeing a Ford or a Chevy parked on the street and the thing is just loaded with rust and asking yourself, did Chevy or Ford actually make it like that? Well, you know the answer to that. I mean, it was corrupted by its environment. The same thing is true with man. God didn't make us or this world the way it is today. It's all been corrupted and it's getting worse. God didn't create evil. Evil came about through man's sin. However, God isn't opposed to using evil to bring about his ultimate purposes. If this is the world we wanted to live in, we exercise our free will and disobedience to God, and we invited all these negative things into the world, well, then God says, then I'm not opposed to using your own sin to bring you to a place where you give your life to me. Again, what did C.S. Lewis say? God whispers in our pleasures and shouts in our pain. Sometimes people are so dull of hearing, God's got to shout. How does he do that? Through adversities. But adversity happens to people that love God. That's true. And sometimes he's just using them as an example of how they come through the adversity, loving God, praising him still. And unbelievers see that, and it's like, wow, what's this guy got? God will even use us, even though we're not in rebellion against him. He'll even use us because we're in these fallen bodies. They get sick. They wear out. And when things happen to us that we would not, never invite upon ourselves willingly, 
but we understand that all things are working together for good. And God's using us, right? God's using us. You know, Norm Geisler, theologian, author, said, and I quote, The only way for Israel to get to the promised land was through the wilderness. The only way to form diamonds is to put pressure on coal. The only way to produce ultimate good is to allow limited evil. If you never allow evil, you'll never have you'll never be able to defeat it. If you don't allow sin, you'll never have the higher good of forgiveness. If you don't allow tribulation, you'll never produce patience, end quote. God is using adversities for his purposes and our betterment. The bottom line, guys, is that God doesn't promote evil. He permits evil. And that's a big distinction, big difference. He doesn't promote evil. He permits evil. Now, we'll stop there. A few more things to say, but we'll stop there. We'll pick it up uh, next week, God willing. And um, so uh, come on back. But until then, uh, please have a blessed day with your families tomorrow, Thanksgiving, and really try to stop and give a heartfelt thanks to God who is, you know, yeah, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes evil touches us, sickness, death, a loved one dies. But God's good. The world is evil, but God is good. And we have to praise him even when we don't understand what he's allowing, what he's up to, because his ways are perfect. So, Father, we thank you that even though we are living in a fallen world, you've redeemed us. We know you. And we thank you, Lord, for your kindness, your goodness. And, Lord, if evil or heartache touches us, give us the grace to look to you and praise you, like Job, that even in these adversities, I'm not going to curse you nor charge you wrongfully. I love you. You're a good God. Give us grace to live that way. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <laughs>